Kira Church. Um, we are reading from John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. And if you've, if you've got one of these church Bibles, it's on page 912. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, he scattered, and he scattered the coins of the t- money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he was talking about was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, Many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Thanks, Selena. Uh, good morning again. Uh, if you missed it before, my name's Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, you might look around the room and wonder where like Andy, Claire, Paul, and Leah are. They're all off at the night church weekend away. So we have another congregation that meets in the evening. Uh, and they've gone away for the weekend up to Otaki. And so you're left with me. Um, it kind of feels like the old days when I uh, used to be the only one around. Um, it means I can do things the way that I like doing them around this and don't have other people telling me what to do. It's great. Um, But we will do what we always do, which is we're going to sit here and we're going to look at God's word together. Uh, And so uh, please keep John chapter 2 open. Uh, now, I want you to imagine that after church today, you, um, you uh, go and see a friend. Who, they don't usually go to church, but uh, this friend, I don't know, something's happened in their life. And they come to you and they go, I want to meet God. I'm ready. I've been thinking about it. Something's on my heart. I want to meet God. Uh, a lot of us love that opportunity. Um, uh, and they come to you and they say, you went to church this morning. Uh, you seem to be someone who's into God stuff. Um, I want to meet him. I want to have an experience of God. Now, what would you do with that? What would you say? Where would you take them to meet God? Uh, you could maybe get on a plane and fly to Europe and see the grand cathedrals of the world, uh, these, these buildings constructed over centuries for the glory of God, these massive ornate structures that, that bring a sense of transcendence when you walk in them. Maybe you'd take them to Jerusalem, to the Holy Land, uh, follow the footsteps of Jesus and his first disciples, places of immense significance, not just to uh, those who follow Jesus, but to two other of the world's major religions. 
Now, maybe you take them to a worship concert. Uh, there's a really great uh, band that does worship music, and they get the lights just right, and they get the, the, um, the sound just right, and they get the chords just right, and, and uh, there's this atmosphere, and there's this emotion, uh, and, and that's how you're going to take them to enter into the presence of God, to have an experience of God. Maybe you take them to a meditation course. Uh, help them to take a journey deep within. Uh, listen to the still, small voice that's inside them. That's a real question. Where can we go to get an experience of God? Where can we meet him personally for ourselves? Is it even possible? Uh, we live in a world that says there's so many different options for how you might do that. Well, the great promise of this passage in John chapter 2 is that we can do exactly this. John chapter 2 is promising you can meet God. You can come into his presence. You can know him as your father. You can be known by him as his child and as his friend. But there is only one way that it is possible. There is only one way you can have this life-giving, this world-altering experience of God. And we're going to see it here in John chapter 2. Uh, now, as is our usual custom, we're working our way through John's gospel, and this is the passage we're up to. John's gospel, it's a biography of the life of Jesus. Uh, and today's passage, uh, we, we enter into it, and Jesus is on his way into the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, now, if you're a first century Jew and your friend came to you and said, I want to meet with God, this is exactly what you do. You take them to the temple in Jerusalem. You take them to where Jesus is going. And so Jesus is on his way to the temple. Look at John chapter 2, verse 13. It'd be great if you can have uh, your Bible open. Uh, John chapter 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Uh, the detail there that's important for us to see is uh, it's, it's Passover. Uh, this is the time of year where God's people gathered together to celebrate the rescue they had from slavery in Egypt. Uh, they'd come together together to remember the Passover lamb that was, uh, that was slain and the blood put on the doorposts to spare the life of the firstborn child. Now, Passover in Jerusalem, uh, uh, the city was heaving. Uh, three times the number of people uh, would be in Jerusalem at Passover time than the usual population. 300,000 people in the city. And in this, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem and he heads to the temple... Now, as Jesus walks into the temple courts, what do you think Jesus was expecting to see? I mean, this is where the Jewish people came into the presence of God. This is where sacrifice for sin was made. This is where uh, purification was done so that the people would be clean before a holy God. And so uh, this is also the place where the people would come and pray to God. So arriving in the temple, Jesus might have expected to see some people praying, uh, see people uh, kind of uh, expressing repentance, maybe a contrite heart, admitting their sin and their guilt. Uh, he might have expected maybe some reverence or some humility or awe or gratitude as they came into the presence of God. But as Jesus turns up to the temple, what does he see? Verse 14 there. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. As Jesus arrives at the temple, uh, he comes to the sights and the sounds of a live animal market, of the kind that kind of gave the world COVID. Um, now, it's important to realize that what Jesus sees here in the temple, these things happening is not really the problem. 
You see the doves, the cattle, the sheep, they were necessary for the temple sacrifices. And if you lived all the way up in Galilee, you weren't expected to kind of stick your cow in your backpack and travel down to Jerusalem to sacrifice in the temple. No. Uh, When you got to Jerusalem, there you would buy your cow or your sheep if you were wealthy and maybe a dove or a pigeon if you were poor and you would bring it into the temple and offer it to God. So the fact that you could buy cows and sheep in the temple is, 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 uh, or for the temple was fine. Uh, and the money changes? Well, every adult male had to pay the temple tax. And the money changes were there because the only coin you could use to pay the temple tax was the Jewish half shekel. Because every other coin that was kind of in existence in that world uh, would have had an image of Caesar on it. Caesar who claimed to be God. And so to use Caesar's coin to pay the temple tax, well, that would be blasphemous. And so you needed to change your Roman money to the Jewish half shekel to pay the temple tax that was required. So you would expect there would be money changes around the temple. So if this, traded was, if this trading was needed and if it was expected, why does Jesus create such a fuss? I think we need to see that it's not that it was happening, but it was where it was happening. Uh, we read here that this is all happening in the temple courts. Now, the temple courts, that was a place that was reserved for prayer, talking to God. So instead of the sounds of uh, souls asking forgiveness, uh, people crying out, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. Instead, it sounds and smells like the A&P show. But what's worse still is that this outer court is the only part of the temple that a foreigner could come in. It's the only part of the temple that they could come and pray and worship God. You see, a thousand years before when King Solomon, who built the first temple, uh, he was dedicating it and he, he prayed this in 2 Chronicles chapter 6. The words should be up on the screen. And he prayed, As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when they come and pray towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. You see, there was always the expectation that it was through the temple that outsiders, foreigners, Gentiles could be brought in to participate with the people of God. But the problem here is that there's a livestock market taking place in that part of the temple. There's a market happening in the only place where the Gentiles could come to pray. And so what does Jesus do? Uh, Well, we live in the age of reactions uh, how people respond. Uh, you go to YouTube and it's full of reaction videos. Have you seen that? Like some of like hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of hits on these videos of people reacting to stuff. So American reacts to rugby, rugby's biggest hits or eating Marmite for the first time or Kiwi slang. Uh, we love a good reaction and we're going to get one from Jesus here. Uh, whole channels dedicated to reactions. And so if John was in the 21st century, the clickbait title would be shocking. Jesus reacts to what's going on in the temple courts. And so let's hit play on that first reaction video, verse 15. Verse 15, so he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, from the details of the text, it it seems like Jesus hadn't been expecting this when he arrived. 
Uh, he wasn't walking into the temple at sundown carrying a whip like a cowboy looking for a fight. Do you notice the details of there? Uh, he walks in, he sees it, and then he makes a whip. <laughs> Jesus walks in, he sees what's going on, and it's as though he takes it in, and then he goes and sits in the corner and begins to braid the whip. I imagine it would have taken a little, little while to do, and then he gets on with clearing the temple. You see, Jesus, it's important to see, he hasn't come here to pick a fight. He's come to pray, not to judge. But Jesus reacts to what he sees is happening, and where? In his father's house. His father's house. Uh, now, this is not the only response video we get. Uh, there's a whole kind of YouTube list of uh, temple reactions today. Uh, there's the reactions of others. There's the reactions of the disciples and then the reactions of the Jews. So uh, uh, first, the disciples, as they watch this remarkable event take place in the temple, it casts their mind back uh, to the word of God, to what had God has already said, and they begin to uh, join the dots. Uh, Have a look there, Uh, just as Jesus has sent uh, those who sell doves out on their way, verse 17. uh, Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Uh, Now that uh, it was written, that's a quote from another part of the Bible, from Psalm 69. Uh, It's a quote from a psalm that is a psalm of King David. A psalm from the time when David was under attack by God's enemies. And the disciples, as they watched Jesus consumed with this righteous anger for the glory of God's house, as they see this, a penny drops. They make a connection between what they've read and now what they see. They see that Jesus' actions, they are fulfillment of Psalm 69, a psalm of David, a psalm of God's great king. And as that penny drops, they realize that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is God's promised saviour king. That, that what David was pointing forward to is now being fulfilled in Jesus. That's their reaction, to join the dots. That Jesus is God's promised saviour king. But the authorities, the Jews, they have a different reaction. Uh, they see what Jesus does and their question is simple. Who the heck does he think he is? Uh, look there in verse 18. The Jews responded to him, verse 18... What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? You see, Jesus comes into the temple and he is like a a, a nobody from nowhere. And and they're like, Jesus, where's your permit? Um, Now, if Jesus had been kind of spraying graffiti on the temple uh, walls or something like that, you might understand their question. Uh, But the sad reality is that Jesus has come in and done exactly what they should have been doing. These people had overseen the dishonoring of God's temple for years and they hadn't done anything about it. And so Jesus' zealous action, it shows them up. And kind of caught on the back foot, they ask for a sign from Jesus. Come on, Jesus, prove to us that you have the authority to do this. Now, if they had eyes to see, the sign, the proof that Jesus has authority to do this, it's already taken place right in front of them. See, the cleansing of the temple, that was the sign. It's what God promised he would do. Uh, In the last chapter of the Old Testament, in the words, the last words that would be ringing in the ears of the people of God as they awaited the coming of Jesus, uh, we read this in Malachi chapter 3. He says, I will send my messenger, that is John the Baptist, who will prepare the way for me. Then suddenly the Lord, that is Jesus, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Uh, 
The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. This is all the sign that they needed. You see, the messenger, John the Baptist, had come. And now suddenly the Lord himself, Jesus the Messiah, has turned up to the temple as he promised. And he has come to to clean things up like a refiner's fire, like a launderer's soap. And so if these Jewish leaders had eyes to see, they would have seen that Jesus is behaving just like this. Purifying the house of God. But they refuse to see it. Instead, they ask for Jesus to prove his authority. Give us a sign, Jesus. And in response, Jesus says, there will be a sign. But it's a sign that's a bit more cryptic and a lot more dramatic than what you're expecting. Verse 19, Jesus responds to him. He says, verse 19, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Uh, now, the, the, the Jews here, they take uh, Jesus' words literally. Uh, and it's not surprising that when you take Jesus' words at this point literally, they become very confused. Verse 20, they replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? What are you saying, Jesus? You're going to tear down this massive edifice, this kind of St. Peter's Basilica, this Notre Dame, this, this great big structure, the greatest religious institution in the world at the time. You're going to tear it down? And you reckon you're going to rebuild it in three days. That's crazy talk, Jesus. But at this point, John, the author, uh, he interjects and he explains for us what Jesus means. Jesus is saying, I'm the new. My body is the new temple. The perfect temple. It will be out with the old and in with the new. And John tells us, verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of, it was his body. Out with the old, in with the new. Jesus is the new temple. Now, this is profound, what John is saying here. John wants us to be super clear about the connection that Jesus is making. So so clear, he wants to. John kind of kind of cheats his kind of story writing thing, and he fast forwards to the end to make sure that we really really understand what's going on here, that we get the connection that Jesus is making. Uh, verse twenty one, John fast forwards um, fast forwards to the end. He says, "But he, the temple he had spoken of was his body." Verse twenty two. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. That they believed the scripture and the words Jesus had spoken. You see, they had connected the dots between the promises of the Old Testament and what they have just witnessed in the temple court. They connected that Jesus uh, was the one who was promised long ago, who has now come to clear out the temple, uh, but not just clear it out. Jesus has come to replace it. To replace it with his body. And that changes everything. See, what John is saying is that through Jesus' death and resurrection, he is the true temple of God. Jesus is God dwelling with his people. Jesus is the place where we can come and worship God in his presence. It is all centered on Jesus and is all made possible 
by his death and his resurrection. Just last week in John chapter 2, we saw that those kind of big six ceremonial washing jars, uh, they were replaced with the finest Pinot Noir from central Otago. um, And we saw that those ceremonial washing jars, they are not needed anymore. Because the people of God are welcomed by Jesus into his heavenly banquet. It was out with the old and in with the new. And we see the same pattern again this week. Jesus saying, I've come to bring an end to the temporary, to the thing that was just a model, to the thing that was a a corrupt shadow, which was the temple. And I've come to bring the reality for which it was always pointing. It was always intended to be this way. The reality that we can enter into the Creator's presence, not through a building or through a ritual or through experience, but that we can know God, that we can meet with God, that we can worship God fully and truly only through Jesus. And it's only because of his death and resurrection. You see, the temple, temple, as big as it was, as permanent as it looked, it was a mere shadow. It was a, a poor reflection of the reality that would come into the world through Jesus. Uh, now, if you bear with me for a second, um, when I was growing up, like a little kid in the 80s, um, the, one of the most famous and the coolest cars that existed was the Lamborghini Contage. Does anyone remember that guy? The Lamborghini Contage. It was this uh, sports car. It had these scissor doors, this sleek design, these massive air intakes on the back. Um, I saw last week that you can buy an exact one-eighth scale model of the Lamborghini Contage. Uh, this is no ordinary toy. The article said it was. Uh, it's a limited edition model. Uh, there, uh, each individual car has had 400 w- hours worth of. Uh, it's been kind of handcrafted over that time by skilled artisans. The interior, the exterior, the engine bay, every detail has been captured and recreated. Now, the crazy thing about this model of this Lamborghini is that it costs fifty-five thousand dollars. Just the model. For $55,000, you can buy a pretty nice car. You know, like the sort of car you can get in and drive around in, not one that just sits on your shelf. But that is one impressive model, right? But it is only and only ever will be a model. You'll never be able to sit in it. You'll never be able to drive it. You'll never be able to have the full Lamborghini experience of putting your, your foot to the floor and being pressed into the back of your seat and hear the engine roar from behind you as you go from 0 to 100 in 5.4 seconds. You'll never have that in the model. It's just a shadow, just a reflection of the real thing. And that is what is going on here with Jesus and the temple. The temple is a model, a very impressive model, but just a model. And its job was always to point us forward to the reality, the real deal, which was Jesus. And this should not have surprised the Jews on that day. Before we've, we heard King Solomon's prayer as he opened the temple, here's another thing that he prayed on that day uh, in 2 Chronicles 16. He asked this rhetorical question as he prays. He says, but will God really dwell on earth with humans? And then Solomon goes on to consider the logistics of God inhabiting temples. He says, the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. You see, just as Solomon was opening the temple, uh, which had kind of nearly sent his country broke to build, he's conceding that the temple itself 
will never be more than just a symbol. The temple itself, it will never be able to do the job for which it was intended. The temple itself, when it was built in the very beginning, it was built with the expectation there would be a time where it would no longer be necessary. It's almost as though the temple was built like a modern appliance. It was, it was not built to last. It was built to become obsolete. And right from the very beginning, the temple was waiting for Jesus to come. Waiting to, for him to come and completely fulfill the promise that it presented. Which means that if you're someone who uh, believes in Jesus, if you're someone who trusts in Jesus, you have an unimaginably great privilege. You see, by coming to Jesus, you have the reality that the ancient temple was just merely a shadow. If you come to Jesus, there are no more barriers between you and God. You see, even for the Jewish people, even with the temple, there were still all these obstacles. There were barriers for the Gentiles. There were barriers where only they could go. Uh, there was only so far into the temple they could go. And then there were barriers for women. There was only so far they could go. And then there were places that only priests could go. And then there was once a year, only one person, a high priest, could on a special day could go into the most holy place. You see, even in the temple, there were so many barriers. But Jesus has come and put an end to it all. You see, Jesus has come and he has come near to us. So anywhere, at any time, we can, by prayer, enter into the Holy of Holies because of what Jesus has done. And one of the implications for this is, for us is that there is no more holy places. There's no more physical temples. Uh, there's no holy ground in this world. There is only Jesus. Uh, a few years back, we had the chance to travel to York in the UK. Um, and right at the centre of York is um, uh, one of the world's most uh, spectacular and well-known cathedrals, the York Minster. Um, apparently, the first church built on that site was from the year 627. That just blows my mind. Uh, the current cathedral that's there now, uh, construction started in 1220. And it took 250 years to build. That's impressive. And it's been there a long time. Uh, we did the usual thing. We took a tour of the Minster. And as you go around uh, inside the building, it's a little bit like a nightclub because there's all these velvet ropes kind of keeping you out of these places, um, uh, keeping you out of certain parts of the cathedral. Uh, and I remember standing uh, by one and looking, and there was this kid next to me, and their mum was there. And um, they were asking their mum why they couldn't go and sit in the large chair. Uh, it looked so cool. It looked like something out of Harry Potter. They wanted to go sit in it. Uh, and the mum replied, oh no, you can't go up there. It's a holy place. Now, I had to fight kind of my Kiwi slash Australians kind of subversion of authority kind of impulse to not just kind of lift the rope and go like, go, go for your life, have fun. Because um, there's no more holy places. No church, no temple, no mosque. There's no more holy places. And so um, it's not too hard for us uh, as we meet in a dance school, but uh, we should never add any spiritual significance to a building, whether it be a church or a cathedral, anything else. We ought not to think that by being in any particular place or uh, in any particular building that we are somehow closer to God. But instead we can enter the very throne room of God as his precious children only by and through Jesus. 
Only by and through Jesus and his, because of his death and resurrection. You see, the sacrifice that God requires now is not one done in a temple and it's not the, 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 the cattle or the sheep or the doves. The sacrifice that God requires, the sacrifice that God has accepted is the real Passover lamb. It's no wonder Jesus sent the animals out of the temple. We don't need the animals anymore. It was said of Jesus, here is the lamb who comes to take away the, here is the lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And that's exactly what he has done. Uh, one of the great ironies of this passage is in verse 19. Uh, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And that itself is a prophecy. It's pointing forward to Jesus' ultimate vindication. You see, as we get to the end of John's gospel in a few years' time, but if you want to read through it, you can now, um, we'll see that the Jews take Jesus up on that offer. Destroy this temple. They'll destroy Jesus' body as they kill him on the cross. As their rejection of his authority and his identity as the Son of God reaches its final climax. But then what happens three days later? Three days later, Jesus raises it again. Not the temple building, but he raises his body and brings resurrection life. Which means that right now he is the living Lord Jesus. Right now he is where humanity, you and me, where we can meet our maker. He is right now where we can go to enter into the presence of God, to receive forgiveness of sins, to see God in his glory. And so if your friend says to you, I want to meet with God, I want to experience God. I want to enter into his presence. Where are you going to take them? The only place to take them is to Jesus. And how do you do that? We open up his word and you read of the one who has laid down his life for you. You get to know Jesus and what he's done for you. And if you believe in his name, if you trust that he is the son of God who has died for sin and rose again, then you can be certain that you have been welcomed into God's presence in his eternal kingdom, in his heavenly temple. And it's all through Jesus. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much now that we live in a world uh, where we do not need to go to a building or a special place. Uh, but that you have come to us. That you have come to us in the Lord Jesus so that we might be forgiven. So that we might have life. So that we, we might be welcomed into your presence. So that we might know you and be known by you. And we thank you so much for these things and the confidence that it brings. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if the musos want to come up, uh, we're going to respond to God's word by singing. Uh, and we're going to sing these words. Uh, we're going to sing the, uh, the song called Before the Throne of God Above. And we're going to sing these words. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Uh, because Jesus has died and rose again, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We will always be welcome with him. Uh, we will always be welcomed in his presence. So please stand as we sing together.